Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my 38th guest. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad our mutual friend, Roland Lazenby, can introduce me to you. Scott, when you think of relationship building in a team environment, what does relationship building mean to you? As a book author, as someone who has covered sports for many years, growing up in California, what does relationship building mean to you? Well, in my line of work, it, it's everything. Um, whether you're talking about uh, the recent years of my career where it's been focused on books or earlier on when I've either covered one specific team or a league as a whole like the NBA, um, you can't emphasize enough what it means to be able to properly interact with others, uh, to get to know them over time, uh, to deal uh, in a friendly way, even if you can't become friends, that makes things complicated, but in a friendly way and professional, uh, it's it's a huge part of the job. Absolutely. And when you think about the book that you've written about Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr, The Life, and you've been friends with Steve Kerr for a long time. You've known him since uh, early days. And, you know, he was a part of the Chicago Bulls second three-peat. You know, he won NBA championships as well with the San Antonio Spurs. And obviously winning NBA championships as the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. And he was featured in the last dance as well. Uh, in the docu-series. What relationship building means to you with respect to your uh, relationship, friendship with Steve Kerr? Well, first of all, Steve Kerr is a perfect example of relationship building um, and treating people well and interacting with people. And I'm not just talking about Steve and I, but Steve and the entire world around him. That's been a huge part of his success. And we can get into that a little bit more about what I learned about Steve and how he interacts with others, with others and what that has meant to his career. But as far as my role in this uh, with Steve and I, um, it's kind of interesting because this is he did not want this book done. Uh, he was against it. Uh, he gave me a little bit of time in group settings, but would not give any one-on-one -on -one time, which is unusual because we've had a, I guess what I would term a very positive professional relationship going back all the way to the 1980s. We get along well. I, I don't know that I'd say we're friends, we're friendly, but it's not like we ever uh, before had hung out. We didn't go to the movies together. I don't think he knows anything about my kids or anything like that. But anytime we saw each other, it was always very cordial. He was always uh, as helpful as he could be. So I know we had a positive relationship. And that was a big payoff because I felt like I had gotten to know him. That I, as it turned out, uh, if you would have asked me in the 1980s when we first connected or the 90s or any time up into the 2020s as I was doing the book, um, everything came back. Uh, to help me in this book. The conversations I had with him when he was a player, an announcer, an executive, and now as a coach uh, were all very beneficial. Even if I didn't use a lot of that, just the fact that I felt comfortable that I had a good handle. I tell people I think I spoke fluent Kerr. <laughs> and that's obviously important because if you're doing something like 100,000 words in a book on a topic, you want to feel like you have a really good handle on that. And I really did with Steve. Uh, part of the relationship building is also with the people around him. It was nice because I had spent so much time around the NBA that I was able to uh, go to a lot of people at arenas, uh, talk to them on the phone, uh, set up different different ways of communicating emails and text because I had past relations with, with them. It did help quite a bit if I could just grab somebody in an arena and say, hey, I want to you know, arrange some time. I don't know if you have a few minutes now or if it's something we can do later on the phone, uh, but that's all beneficial. That goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about relationship building and uh, being able to talk with people being a huge part of the job. I think all that came to fruition with this book. 
And what were the things in the book that you enjoyed writing the most about with respect to Steve? And what is it about Steve that made him who he became in his later years? Because Steve Kerr, as a young man growing up and playing at the University of Arizona and then getting drafted, then eventually making it to the Chicago Bulls and then the Spurs, going into broadcasting, and then in his later years and recent years, coaching the Warriors. But what were the things that you enjoyed covering the most about Steve that perhaps people didn't know about? There was so much that I enjoyed about this. Uh, when I say that I I had fun doing this project, that's not just something I'm supposed to say. It's a <laughs> sort of a marketing. Yeah, it was a it was a blast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's true. I really enjoyed it, and I think probably the most um, was being able to put a lot of the events in his life in context. And I was amazed at how many different times. Uh, either there was an incident, something that happened, or somebody he met, just a name that you could mention uh, at, early in his life that would come back to impact him again 20 years later, 30 years later. Uh, I found the whole thing really fun to do, that it was sort of like putting a puzzle together. I'll tell you how I pitched it to the publisher, and this is why this is is what came true. I said, it's the story of a guy with a unique career, but a fascinating life. I wanted this to be a life story, not lining up box scores. And here's when he won the championship for the Bulls. And here's when he was coaching the Warriors. And here's what they did against the Cavaliers, uh, you know, in game three, that kind of thing. I wanted it to be about his personality. I wanted it to be about his experiences. And it's amazing that you can bring in so many different times of things that came back full circle, came back around when he's in his 40s that he may have learned in learned about in college. Uh, he was at the University of Arizona and he took a trip to France. They did one of those summer tours and he, uh, one of the small towns they were in, their host uh, introduced everybody to their to the little son. I think he was four years old at the time. And it was, oh, here's young Tony Parker. <laughs> so Steve ends up being teammates with not so young Tony Parker. And there's stories like that all the way through uh, involving things in his basketball life, like I just mentioned. Uh, if you want another example, and there's a lot of them, um, there was a, a time that somebody went to school at Swarthmore with one of Steve's brothers and knew, knew Steve's brother a little bit, his older brother a little bit. They weren't like good friends, but they were acquaintances. And many decades later, uh, this this person, this friend of Steve's brother, uh, is in the White House talking to President Obama about what do we do about making a connection with the new uh, leader of North Korea? Not exactly the place you'd expect Steve Kerr to come up, but this guy suggested Steve Kerr. Let's send him to North Korea as an envoy. Let's let him make that connection because Kim Jong-un was a huge fan of the Michael Jordan Bulls. And Steve, of course, was part of that. So it's all these different moments where I'm sort of having to stop myself and thinking, wow, really? This really happened? You know, Tony Kerr, Kim Jong-un, he's meeting President Reagan, Vice President uh, Bush. And it just goes on and on, and it's an amazing story. And that I think that's probably my favorite part is all these wow moments of things that came back full circle later in his life. And they highlight, you know, his father and his tragic passing in the Last Dance docuseries. How much more did you cover with respect to the relationship that Steve had the close relationship with his father and had Steve at any time in his life or even currently, has he ever discussed having political aspirations? I don't, I don't think I covered a whole lot of new material. That was his freshman year at Arizona, January 
1984, and it was certainly covered because it's it was the worst time of his life. He's had some difficult moments uh, with some physical uh, physical issues related to to basketball, and then of course when he was a coach, everyone knew about that early in his coaching time. But nothing, as you might imagine, like losing his father. They were close. Steve thought the world of him and still thinks of him often and still can be brought to tears. Uh, It's not something he talks about a lot, but because uh, of his very vocal stand on social issues, things like gun control in particular, uh, there's been a lot of different moments uh, that have impacted Steve's lives, friends, teammates, other people he knew have been have been dramatically uh, impacted by gun issues, but nothing, of course, like losing his dad. And as Steve has become more prominent in that, uh, it all traces back. And so he, he talked some about about how he got started in this and why this is a very personal situation for him. It's not just uh, activism like he like he speaks out on on voting rights and, and different topics in society. But the gun control is personal because of that. Of course. And, you know, it was highlighted in the Last Dance docuseries as well. You know, Michael Jordan lost his father to gun violence, too. And, you know, Steve was asked in the docuseries, had he and Michael speak about the passings of their fathers and the manner in which they passed. I think Steve alluded to the fact that it would be too painful to discuss. So they had never talked about it. That's just something that they have in common from that standpoint of it being unfortunate, but obviously they have so much in common being teammates and winning three championships together with the Chicago Bulls. When you think about who Steve got to coach um, for uh, and people that, you know, Steve had to uh, play under, you know, before he became a coach like Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich, how much did those two individuals uh, influence Steve's life tremendously, of course, but, you know, you covering, you know, Steve Kerr's life, would you say Phil Jackson more than Greg Popovich had an influence on Steve or equally the same, or I would imagine in different ways? I, I think equal and somewhat similar. And you hit on the key point where by saying how much did the impact his life, rather than how much did the impact his career or his his coaching style, what Steve has become now, because the big influences were on his life. Um, the Coaching-wise, it would be Phil Jackson more because that's kind of the system that Steve loves, the, the constant ball movement, what was known in Chicago as the triangle offense. Um, he <laughs> Steve got to San Antonio and was very frustrated. Uh, playing for Greg Popovich was not a good fit for the Spurs for a long time or for Steve Kerr. It was strictly great financially for Steve. The fact that he went there, he got a bundle as he's trying as he's thinking his career is obviously coming to a close. Uh, but he at the Greg Popovich style at the time, and it's changed quite a bit since then. But when Steve was playing there, it was very much uh, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, and especially Tim, because David was near the end of his career. But it was get the ball to Tim and get out of the way, and which is kind of the opposite of of Phil with the Bulls, where Steve had just been, where it was even if you're Michael Jordan, you had to share the ball, even if you're the greatest offensive weapon in history. So coaching wise, I think that Phil was a greater influence. Uh, personally, I'd say it's pretty close because Steve has taken the best of both of them. He emulates them in personality, uh, in not only allowing the real world, things like politics and social moments, not only allowing them to be part of the daily life with the team, but encouraging it. Uh, he, he absolutely loves those conversations and uh, different things like, uh, when the Spurs had a practice many years ago when Steve's playing days and it was uh, an election year and the election was coming close, uh, Pop would do things like, all right, Republican voters on one side, 
Uh, you're against the Democrats just for fun, just to mix it up. And I don't even know who ended up on what side, but it kind of didn't matter. It was just sort of a fun thing. Uh, so when uh, the Warriors had a chance to go to the African-American Museum rather than go visit the Trump White House, it wasn't just a protest for Steve. It wasn't just, you know, let's let's give the middle finger to Donald Trump. He genuinely embraced the opportunity to go learn at the museum. And I talked to the, the guy that gave them the tour that day and said Steve was asking a ton of questions, genuinely connected. When you talk about relationship building and when I say Steve is is a perfect person to, to use as an example, that's one of those moments. But that is Steve to his core, being not only interested in things in the outside world beyond basketball, but wanting people around him to uh, be aware of it as well. And I think he learned a lot about relationship building with respect to Phil Jackson, as well as Greg Popovich. And yes, to your point, the triangle offense is an offense that he thrived in just as much as all the other Chicago Bulls, including Michael Jordan. And, you know, he even had that one year in Portland when he got to get reunited with Scottie Pippen. And that was um, a great year for him as well. Uh, talk to me about his Portland uh, year with, with Scottie Pippen. Well, he loved playing with Scotty anywhere, whether Chicago or Portland. And Portland was a really uh, brief time in his career, uh, very short, but he, he loved it there. Uh, the atmosphere, just the vibe of the city itself, but then also the connection between the basketball side, the basketball fans, and the team is is unique in Portland. You're not a professional athlete. Uh, people go to watch. You're part of the community. It's one of the many things that makes Portland special. Really, one of the the best towns. It is. Uh, it's got that unique atmosphere that they want you to connect with them. The fans do. The fans want to connect with you, feel like you're part of the community. Again, not just somebody visiting for the NBA season and then going back to your town. And Steve really embraced that. It was uh, it was a great season for him. It was a very strange time because that was the, the Jailblazers era. Uh, and that's the opposite of Steve's personality. When you talk about a group of troublemakers, uh, that's never been Steve. <laughs> and so... Uh, but they did have a lot of quality citizens on that team, Steve, and became tight with Chris Dudley. And uh, there were other people there. Steve Smith was there around that time, Mitchell Butler. Uh, there were several others. And Steve sort of connected with young Zach Randolph. And I think that that helped Zach quite a bit, just make that transition to the NBA uh, in maybe easier than it would have been if there weren't these real positive locker room influences like Steve and, and Chris Dudley and some of the other guys I mentioned. And when he got into broadcasting, did he know at that point that there might be an opportunity, you know, years into his broadcasting that he would want to be a coach? Is that something he always wanted to become at some point in his career or post-playing days rather, or was it a spur of the moment? type of opportunity where, you know, once Mark Jackson's era was over, Steve and the Warriors just connected at the right time. And Steve was able to fill that void and be blessed with the opportunity to coach Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and that supporting cast. He was always aiming for that. It was not anything that just kind of happened and and he said, well, I hadn't thought about it much, but I'll give it a try. It was it was quite the opposite. Ever since high school, at least, and uh, certainly since college, uh, he had been had a thought for a little while of going into athletic administration, one day becoming an athletic director. Uh, so he was always aiming for something in sports. Uh, but the athletic director thing was pretty brief. Most of his adult life it was always, I'm going to be a coach someday. And he was always thinking of it. It was always front and center. Uh, he left Arizona 
uh, after his senior year thinking, boy, if things break right, I might be able to eke out one, maybe even two seasons in the NBA as a player. He did. If you would have told him 15 years, he would have laughed. He thought, I'm going to play a year or two and then come back. And uh, he had a very good relationship with Lou Olson. And when you talk about Popovich and Phil Jackson being influences, we have to mention Lute as well, because that was forever one of uh, Steve's positive influences. And Steve thought, I'm going to, you know, play a year. Uh, God, if I get really lucky, I'll get a second year out of it. <laughs> and then I'm going to come back and I'll be a grad assistant for Lute. And then I'll work up and either hopefully make a full-time assistant uh, at Arizona, where he loved Tucson. Um, he had a house there for a long time. And loved the school. It meant the world to him, the, how it impacted his life. And he thought, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to be a Wildcat assistant coach or somebody else is going to hire me. He had wanted to be a coach for a long time. He thought that was his destiny. Later on, when he was uh, working for TNT, he would go around and he was always making notes. Sometimes he would just on these any piece of scrap paper he could find. Uh, he would see something in a practice. He would get access that the rest of the media didn't get because it was a league entity, TNT. He was making notes on drills. He was making notes on a play he saw during a game. Uh, they would always visit with coaches before the game. The TNT crew would just to be able to get some insights before their broadcast. And he would make notes on that. The famous story, uh, and Marv Albert loved telling this, uh, you know when you would go to the cleaners and the clothes come back and there's that piece of cardboard that, at least for the men, where they hang the suit around so it's not directly on the hanger? He would take that piece of cardboard and it was the only thing he may have had and he would bring it to the arena and be jotting notes down on the cardboard that he got from the cleaners. He wanted to be a coach for a long time and he would have been one much sooner than as it turned out with the Warriors except that he wanted to be there for his kids. And he mostly was, that was the goal of his, that TNT would take him away a little bit. But from his playing days, he knew exactly how much time was involved that you're, if you're with a team full-time, that you're gone all the time. And he did not want to do that. He made that commitment to himself that he wanted the kids and his wife to be the priority, not just be a sort of a long-distance dad that would check in by phone uh, for – uh, for most of what six or eight months a year that that you've got the schedule, uh, so he knew for a long time, and the offers came in, and he turned down several offers uh, to be a coach, several offers to be a GM before he ended up with the Warriors. Sure, absolutely, and just briefly, you know, going back to his playing days before we talk about the work that he's done recently in the NBA. Also, in the last dance, he talked about the influence that he really much appreciated uh, from John Paxton. And he even said in the docuseries, that's the spot I need to be in, were his direct words. And I think that was a turning point for Steve because once he got to the Bulls, John Paxton really you know, took Steve under his wing and right place, right time, because Steve's first year with the Bulls was John Paxton's last year, with the Bulls in the last year of his career. Talk to me about that relationship, because that's relationship building at its best when you have a tenured player who is departing from his career. And then you have someone like Steve, who, to your point, and I think it was highlighted as well. I mean, Steve has been public about how he didn't know how much time he was going to have in the NBA. I mean, he was just so blessed to be even wearing an NBA uniform. So to have someone like John Paxson in his life, I mean, really made Steve feel that, hey, I can really do great things with this organization, having a guy like him mentor me. So would love to know what you could share about that. Well, it's interesting. One of the reasons that Steve wanted to go to Chicago, he wasn't getting that many, he wasn't getting any, any other offers. So it's not like he had a lot to choose from, but from the beginning, he thought, I want to be in Chicago, which is crazy because they're coming off a championship. They had uh, three guard, three veteran, well-established guards in place, B.J. Armstrong, uh, Paxson, and, of course, Michael. And he still said, I want to go there. I think I can fit in well there because how did he see himself? As the next John Paxson. He thought, I can be that guy. He Everybody knew that John was – 
getting near the end of his career and he had been having injury problems. And he said, I think I can go there and sort of fit into that role, whether John is still playing or I can do that behind John. Uh, Paxson is a guy he pointed to right from the beginning. And in game style and in personality, we're very similar. So it's not like it's a surprise that they connected. Two guys are just very grounded, down to earth, played at major programs, had uh, John, by that point, had built a long career. Steve was on his way, but were never stars. Uh, you know, had great moments. Obviously, Paxson did, and in Chicago with uh, the the finals, they're hitting the great shot, and Steve had that same one later. But when he first showed up, it was more. I think I can be the guy that eventually replaces Paxson, and then it, as you said, uh, was somebody that became a very positive influence in him not just for the the bulls of the moment, but for Steve later in life. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about how much confidence Steve got, you know, to get the ball passed to him in that critical moment in the 1997 NBA Finals. And Steve hits that shot and it gave him so much confidence. You know, he even choked about it in the uh, championship, you know, uh, parade or festivities in 1997, where it was like, I guess I had to bail out Michael again, (laughs) you know, starts laughing. But, you know, to build from that point of getting to the Bulls and being under John Paxton's wing, you know, as a mentor, and then being involved in that, you know, unfortunate altercation with, with Michael in practice, and then Phil had to, you know, throw Michael out of practice. And, but they actually grew from that moment and their relationship got so much stronger and they respect each other so much. And, you know, Michael talks about in the docuseries, how he felt bad and, you know, how, you know, he apologized to Steve and Steve, you know, felt that their relationship just got even stronger and better from that moment. I mean, it took something like that, the low point, you know, in the locker room for something like that to occur to have a Michael Jordan respect Steve so much that he passed the ball to him because he had the confidence in Steve. Michael had the confidence in his teammates and that gave them confidence. And I think that really was a defining moment as well for Steve to be able to hit that shot to help them win their fifth NBA championship. And you can point to a lot of different basketball moments, but that probably is the single most defining one. And I think that in my opinion, Him getting into the front office with the Phoenix Suns and getting that experience prior to even going to Golden State, he had an appreciation. He's a truly genuine guy, great reputation. But what's great about him, whether in the front office or, you know, leading a team to the playoffs and winning NBA championships as a coach, he is a type of guy that is going to respect all starting five players. And even guys who come off the bench because he was a guy that came off the bench himself. Exactly. Exactly. So share some of that perspective for the audience. Well, the one thing I'll disagree with you on, sort of, is saying that uh, the unfortunate incident of the fight with Michael Jordan, it was unfortunate for Steve's face, for his eye that got clocked, but really was one of the best things to ever happen to Steve because uh, he didn't have any connection with Michael Jordan before that. And what Michael wanted most of all was fighters. And uh, he obviously wanted a fighter who was a, a great player. And Steve was not a great player, but he had something about him that Michael had this inner rage and everybody knew it. And the fact that Steve would not back down, would not get bullied like so many other Michael Jordan teammates through the years, really struck Michael. And once they got into the fight, even though Steve knew he was going to end up getting the worst of it, he didn't back down. He showed himself to be as much of a fighter as Michael Jordan And that got him behind this velvet rope that very few other people get behind in Michael's life. And you're right. They made a connection and that lasted forever. That connection lasted long enough that Michael would point to him 
and say they're going to double off me, meaning the Jazz, the Jazz Defenders in 1997. And Steve took his finger and he said, I'll be ready. Steve was a guy that always struggled with confidence. Uh, never thought he should have been at Arizona. Didn't think he was good enough. Never thought he should have had a long career in the NBA. Didn't think he was good enough. But in that moment, he told Michael, if you give me the ball, I'm not going to let you down. And that goes back to the fight. That goes back and Michael had the confidence to say, I'll throw him the ball because I know he's not going to shrink from the moment. I can't guarantee he's going to make it, but I know he's not going to be afraid because he wasn't afraid of me. And that's everything to Michael. And so uh, that relationship took a big step forward uh, when they got into the fight. And by the way, for, for the for the Bulls as a whole, because I think Phil Jackson later said the fact that Michael felt bad and apologized, and Michael never does that, never did that. Uh, this guy with this ferocious appetite to, to compete uh, never showed any any sort of gosh, I'm sorry. That just wasn't Michael. And the fact that he did in that moment told Phil Jackson that Michael is taking a step forward himself in allowing others, in embracing others, not just give me the ball and get out of the way. And so that was a big moment for Michael. It was a huge moment for the Bulls as a team. And it was a life-changing moment for Steve Kerr. Absolutely. It was a life-changing moment to Steve Kerr, for Michael, to your point and the Bulls locker room in general, because they were able to rally around each other from that moment and and play for each other, the likes of which very few organizations are blessed to have so much success with consistency, with excellent style of play and precision with the triangle offense and really respecting one another. You know, they show a lot of, you know, Michael being tough on his teammates and he was as you had used the word ferocious, which is an excellent word to describe Michael Jordan's competitive nature, second to none. And he was a leader in that team, but you know he knew when to defer to Pippen. He knew when to defer to Kerr. He knew when to defer to Rodman. He, he just knew who he had to have around him to win those championships. But he definitely was the alpha male and he was the leader of that team. But that allowed Steve years later to continue his leadership and and really, you know, become his own and have his own identity. And talk to me about what he learned being a part of the Phoenix Suns and how much of that influenced him with the Warriors. So despite winning championships, I'm sure he had to really wrestle with the fact that he let one championship get away when you're up, you know, 3-1 in a series against LeBron's Cleveland Cavaliers, and then they win three straight games. And then there was one game where Draymond Green was not able to play. Maybe they could have used his participation in that contest to be able to overcome a ferocious comeback from the Cavaliers. But talk to me about the championships and the highs and lows. And did he want to leave the Suns? The Suns years were very interesting uh, because it's not something he wanted to do, become a GM. He, by that point, he had said he realized to himself he wanted to be a coach. But again, uh, he was with uh, he was in Phoenix and his kids were in uh, San Diego. The family was in San Diego. And so he was jetting back and forth a pretty short flight. Uh, but. That's one of the things that that helped him in two ways. It made him realize he did not want to be a general manager the rest of his life, that he wanted to be a coach. He missed that being around the team on a daily basis as opposed to being at some games, home games in particular, and then you're off scouting a lot of the time and you're spending so much of your time on the phone with agents and uh, and, uh, college coaches doing background work and different things like that. And it just wasn't something he loved. He knew then he what he thought before was confirmed, that he wanted to be a coach, not a GM. Uh, the Phoenix time also taught him the importance of a strong relationship on all three levels, coach, general manager, owner. And he knew from the Chicago days that that, was, uh, that, that could be a real problem. But that was as a player. He saw Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause 
going at it on a constant basis. Uh, but he's also a little bit removed as a player. When you're in that situation, uh, when you're the uh, general manager and there's not a great vibe, there's not a great connection from coach to GM and especially GM to owner as he lived, and that was a, a big problem for him, uh, it, it pointed out and it led to the eventual conclusion that one of the reasons I'm not taking the next job that everybody thought he was going to take, he was, you know, Phil wanted to hire him. Uh, Steve desperately wanted to work for Phil Jackson. He thought that would be fantastic. That was a career goal. But he saw in Jim Dolan and the ownership situation with the Knicks that that was a mess. And he didn't want to get into that. So when he had the chance to go work for general manager Bob Myers, and owner Joe Lacob and co-owner Peter Goober with the Warriors, that's one of the reasons that he took the job. That's a big reason. He wanted to be closer uh, to San Diego, again, to his kids. He didn't want to be back in New York. Uh, but it was much more about the relationship that he would have with the people with the Warriors versus the people with the Knicks, specifically Dolan. And that's one of the points that his Phoenix years really drove home. Uh, we're talking, obviously, and you spend so much time on relationship building. Uh, that's one of the reasons Steve Kerr went to the Warriors, because the chance to have, because he recognized that New York would have been uh, difficulty because of the owner, not because of Phil, but because of the owner. And he recognized that the situation in Golden State presented many more positives. That obviously attributed to the instant success that Steve had being able to win championships right away, even getting to NBA finals, the times that he didn't come out on top with a championship. So you're the second best team in the league once you make it to the NBA finals, but he has four NBA championships as the Golden State Warriors head coach. I mean, what more can you ask for being able to coach Steph Curry, you know, the greatest shooter in NBA history, especially from, you know, three point percentage wise or speaking rather. And then you have Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and then you had players, you know, who would change, you know, throughout the years, but always having a constant three or four guys on those championship teams. What did you learn from those years or since, you know, Steve has been a coach there? What have you learned about Steve and how his life came full circle, starting as a young guy, having the you know excitement of growing up and watching UCLA basketball, and and then comes full circle. You know he's he's not just a spectator. I mean, people were the spectators watching him being the main guy, coaching NBA franchise, and doing phenomenal work, and now considered one of the top fifteen coaches in NBA history now. So, how much did Steve grow as a person to prepare him to be a head coach for the Warriors. He showed up with the perfect attitude. Uh, he had grown in all the right ways in terms of being ready. Uh, he had two kids out of school, uh, out of out of the house in college, and one was a senior, I think, at the time in high school. So he felt he was emotionally ready. And everything to that point had led him to be ready for this opportunity. Uh, preparation was always a huge part of, of uh, his mindset as a player. He was always one of the first guys to show up for practice, one of the last guys to leave. And he was always working on the shots he would need to take. He was not one of those guys that was out there goofing around, taking half-court hook shots, and you know, like you'll see a lot of guys do and things like that. Preparation was a huge part of his life. And he shows up to the Warriors, and let's be honest, as much as – the as much as a lot of people were thought he would be a terrific coach. Again, as I said before, people had been approaching him for many years to become a head coach long before he accepted that job from the Warriors, but he had never coached a game in his life, assistant coach or head coach. And he's replacing a guy that had been successful. Mark Jackson uh, had been winning 50 games. He had the Warriors uh, in the playoffs. It was not where they wanted to get, but there was certainly forward progress. The defense had uh, been very good under Mark Jackson. Steph Curry was developing. And the most important thing that Steve did when he showed up 
and he came in with ideas in, in X's and O's uh, terms. But the biggest thing he brought was the right attitude. He came in and from day one told these guys, you've done a lot of things well. I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. I just want to, I think I can build off of what you've done so far, and you've done a lot of really good things. And that was key. He did not say, forget everything you learned before. It's a new era. He said, kind of the same era. We're just continuing. We're going to focus on things like ball movement, and I want more guys involved. It's not going to be that Steph-oriented offense like it was with Tim Duncan from his days with the Spurs. And they ended up taking off right away because of those two things. The ball movement was better. The defense was still good. But most importantly, it was the attitude that he showed up with the right personality. And going from uh, Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr is also a huge moment for the franchise because Mark Jackson had a good connection with Steph Curry. Uh, Steph Curry wanted to play for Mark Jackson. And we all know what happens. You lose the franchise player. Uh, you sort of uh, you break apart from him in the locker room, emotional-wise, personality-wise. If he's not feeling good, nobody's feeling good. Right. So the fact that Steve came in and understood that and didn't try to, again, as I said before, never was, you know, forget everything you learned before. The genius is here. I got this covered. It was never any of that. It was we're gonna we're gonna do these things and it's all gonna work out well and it's just more of what you've done before but with a few tweaks and uh, the warrior you hit on the key point the warriors weren't just good they were good right away that first year and you can't give Steve too much credit for uh, his approach on why they were that good that soon. Sure. And you know it, it takes a village too. I mean to be successful and I love all of the the synergies and how close the basketball family is. I mean, you, you know, Steve got to have Luke Walton as his assistant coach in the first NBA championship. You know, Luke Walton played for Phil Jackson in LA. Luke Walton's father's Bill Walton, and you're covering him as well as all the other UCLA greats in your book. You know, I've had the privilege of, you know, meeting and humble, I say, uh, meeting, you know, Michael Jordan, Ron Harper. You know, I've also heard a lot of great things about the Warriors ownership. You know, other guests on my podcast is the current assistant general manager of the Golden State Warriors and director of player personnel, Larry Harris. And I interviewed his father, Del Harris, you know, former NBA coach um, and also in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Kim Stone, another guest of mine previous guest. She was the general manager of the Chase Center for two years before it was actually in between two tenures, two separate tenures with the Miami Heat. And now she's the president of the UBS arena um, up in the Northeast. Uh, but all of these people who I've interviewed or talked to, including you now, everybody says wonderful things about Steve, great things about the Warriors ownership. Obviously, having guys like Luke Walton or Phil Jackson you know, it's typical when you look at an individual, it could be a Michael Jordan, it could be a Steve Kerr, it could be whomever. They always associate themselves around people who there's trust and respect and a comfortability that, that, that's mutual. You can't really explain it. It's, it's something that's innate. It just something clicks. And you always typically seek out ones who have had the most impacts on your life and who have made you feel good and maybe tough love. I mean, Michael being around his teammates, I mean, it's a lot of tough love, but the tough love that Steve got from Michael, I mean, definitely pay dividends because it made their relationship that much stronger. But my point is, is that when you think about Steve's relationship with the Warriors ownership and having a guy early on like Luke Walton as his assistant coach, you know, talk to me about those relationships and how, from a relationship building standpoint, how that brought, you know, Steve a lot of comfort knowing he had people around him who, you know, made him feel that, you know, this is a good situation that he's in with the Warriors. As we talked about a few minutes ago, that that feeling that he had, that he had a connection with the Warriors uh, was a big part of why he went there. And as it turned out, it's a big 
part of the success that uh, he he knew Joe Lacob a little bit. He had sort of connected through mutual friends on some uh, golfing expeditions and things like that. He knew Bob Myers, the general manager, better because when Steve was uh, GM with the Suns, Bob was an agent. And they would they would talk business then. And and Bob and Steve are a lot alike in terms of just genuinely good people, very grounded, uh, not in it for the spotlight. Um, just you could see them working together and hitting it off and getting along well and complimenting each other. So that's not a surprise. Um, if you were to do a list of the most well-liked people in the NBA over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, I don't know who would be number one, but I know that you wouldn't get very far down the list before Steve is mentioned. Uh, he is universally liked around the league, um, respected certainly, even before he had this great success. As I said before, it's amazing how many people early on said, I want to hire this guy as my coach long before he was ready to go into coaching. And the same, there was also teams that said, well, I'm not as a coach, but I want him as my general manager. Teams tried to hire him as a GM. Uh, the guy that couldn't beg a scholarship coming out of high school, the guy that thought he wouldn't, might not even get drafted until his senior year convinced him that he maybe, that maybe he would, was the number 50 pick, suddenly had teams lining up for him for two different high profile jobs. It's amazing this guy's life story. Uh, but one of the reasons is because people saw that he connected so well with everyone, people from different backgrounds. Um, he would be able to show up at the arena uh, long before a game to get some shots up and be talking to the security guard. He would walk through the Suns arena when he was a GM uh, as people were setting up long before the fans got in. And he would see some of the vendors and would remember about, you know, one of the kids uh, was about to graduate high school or college or somebody was about to have a baby or something like that. And he just had this ability, this personality that you mentioned to connect with people. And that has been a huge part of his success at every level. Uh, he's always been very mature. I think a lot of that is because of his experiences when he was very young, living in different cultures around the world came back to help him that it wasn't that he so he was exposed to different to different personalities different cultures and that helped him but most of all helped him when he finally decided to go into coaching uh his personality his sense of being able to connect to understand people has been a huge part of it now i get that not everybody likes him uh, around the world, and certainly in this country, he's not always the most popular guy in the room, so to speak. But that's mostly because of political reasons. Um, anybody that has gotten to know him, even if they don't like his political stance, even if they don't like his activism, and we can talk a lot about about some of the faults there, there you know, the, the hypocrisy that has gone on in some cases, but. Those people, if you know him, you like him is basically what it comes down to. You can disagree with him and you can hate him for what he stands for and, and uh, who he's against. And he certainly has faced a lot of that. But by and large, if you talk to almost anybody around the NBA, uh, if you know him, you like him. What has covering Steve in your mind? How much have you learned about yourself through this whole process? And, you know, from a relationship building standpoint, I would love for you to expand more on your association with Steve. And by this book coming out, is he someone you could still pick up the phone and he'll take your call and say, hey, Scott, how's it going? You know, keeping in mind that, yes, he didn't want to be a part uh, of the book in an intimate sense, meaning that, you know, you had to write the book and take notes or study and it really goes back many years, you know, your conversations with him and what you've covered, you know, by covering the NBA and all the outlets that you, you worked for and all your work that's been featured and everything that you've had to research and, and all the people you've had to talk to. But is he someone who, although he wasn't involved in you putting the book together, 
that he still has that same level of respect for you? I would say possibly not. Um, don't know for sure, but I know he was not happy that this book came out, didn't want it to come out, um, did his best to to discourage some people from talking to me, didn't strong arm anybody and say, don't or don't you dare, but made it clear that he was not happy about this. Um, so I, I would say things have probably changed. Uh, again, it's not like we traded Christmas cards before this. We had a good work relationship. Um, it's not like uh, this has harmed a friendship. Um, we got along well. I I think if we were to st- if we were to pass each other on the street, I think you would we would be high and have a nice conversation. Um, at the same time, I'm realistic. To, I I know that he's not happy about this. And keeping that in mind, you're prideful of the fact that you wrote this book and it's a product of yours and you wanted to be a book author first and knowing that you were having your association with Steve, that there was potential that it would change. But I'm sure if you were to see him again, there's no reason to lose hope. I think that he would still treat you the same way that he's always treated you. And kind of the bottom line it's a very positive book. It is It is something that, you know, when it's his turn to get nominated for sainthood, somebody's going to say, here, here's all the evidence. It's a very positive book. I think it points out some things that he may not like, but that just means that he's human, that he's he's had his, his moments that he didn't handle himself really well in very public settings and Maybe even in private settings, something. Oh yeah, private settings for sure. That he there's moments he regrets, and he probably would just assume that wasn't those weren't discussed. But again, it is easily you know no, nobody can read this and say that's a negative work. That it's not like doing something on a politician or a famous entertainer who would say, "God, you really you really smeared them good" or something. It's it's not that kind of book at all. It's not a uh, digging through his trash can, looking for tax records, and you know, let let's jump out of the bushes with a camera and a microphone and do some sort of gotcha moment. It's not that at all. So I think you're probably right. I, I think that especially uh, since his big concern has been shown to be false, the reason he didn't want to do it was because he thought it was going to cost him. Um, and the Warriors that it was too many of the players were going to say, oh, was, you know, Steve's the star now, I guess all of a sudden it's, you know, we got all bow to him and that it was going to cause him to lose the locker room. Well, you know, the very year, the, when the, the book came out that season, that next season, they won the championship. So guess what? I didn't bring down the Warriors <laughs> as, <laughs> as, as was one of his big concerns. Um, so I think you're probably right. And I, I think that's, just the real world and and uh and also um the fact that as i said before i we'd always he'd had 30 years of knowing that that uh how i work and by the way made it clear when he said no said it's nothing personal uh i I would turn this down for anybody he said you know i know that that you and i have known each other a long time so he made it clear that it was not an issue with me that it just was I, i was going to cause the collapse of the warriors that was his reason. It was something he learned from Popovich that don't make it about yourself. Well, I'm hopeful that you have many more conversations with him and that, you know, everything continues to evolve and let nature take its course. And I know that having even interviewed Roland Lazenby, our mutual friend who had to write or chose to write Michael Jordan to life, you know, he shares and echoes similar things, you know, writing a book about Michael Jordan and including everything he could possibly include. He always prided himself, Roland, from my interview, I gather, that it was all about telling the story and obviously speaking with facts and doing all the research. And when you're a book author, you want to do like in every other profession. You want to do the best job possible and you want to put out the best work. And I think that that's something someone like Roland and you share because 
just like Roland wrote about Michael, you write about Steve and there's some synergies there because they were both teammates and your explanation reminds me of Roland's explanation of what it was like, you know, writing about, you know, Michael Jordan's life. Um, but speaking about the life, how about the life of Sky Howard Cooper? Not nearly as interesting. <laughs> you know, growing up in California, did you always know that you wanted to cover sports and you worked and affiliated with a lot of different outlets? You know, your work has been featured with ESPN and the Los Angeles Times, Turner Sports, Sacramento Bee. Talk to me about what covering sports, especially the NBA, and and you're you know you're writing a book about the greatest you know college basketball years in UCLA's history, and and big star players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton and the Hall of Fame coach John Wooden, best college basketball coach of all time. You're going by the number of championships. So talk to me about relationship building in your own life and each stop along the way, you know, what, what did you enjoy in all the different media outlets you, your work was featured in and, and other books that you've written? Well, you're looking at the luckiest guy ever uh, because I didn't set out. I didn't start out with plans to do this. It just something that I guess was meant to be Um, just, Got into a great situation uh, in high school in journalism and continued that on into college and uh, met people that were incredibly positive influences and allowed themselves to be. And that's key because a lot of what I learned was from watching, but a lot of what I learned and when I advanced in my career was because so many extremely talented people were willing to spend some time with me and to start my career at the Los Angeles times is the greatest gift possible because that's a master's class and a PhD in sports journalism, all in one, especially at that time, when you talk about the 1980s and the 1990s was a phenomenal group of people. uh, When you talk about a starting lineup, uh, in sports journalism, the LA Times in those years was was incredible. And just to be in that setting, the chance to learn. And then as I advanced, I went to I went to different places. And uh, when I went to the Turner Sports, it was to do NBA.com, but then I got an opportunity at NBA TV. So I was able to expand a lot at that time. And I did uh, a lot of a fair amount of TV work over the course of a few years, and and I don't know if I was any good, but they kept asking me back, so I guess that's a pretty good sign. And and I got to learn from some very talented people there. And then again, now that I the last several years have been sent have been uh, spent in the book world and the in this industry, which is sort of I'm doing the same thing, but I'm not in that. You know, I'm doing the writing, the reporting, the research, the interviewing, and all that other stuff. But books are different than than spending a day or two on a story for the daily newspaper. And so, once again, I've been really fortunate that the companies that I've worked for, because this is on a on contract basis, when you're doing books, it's not you're you're one place for 20 years like I was at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, same thing. Uh, my experience. With the editors and the people at uh, HarperCollins and William Morrow, who published the Steve Kerr, and now with Atria and Simon and Schuster, who I'm working for doing the UCLA book that's coming out in spring 2024, I'm surrounded in positives. These are smart people uh, who are good people. And so there's a lot of conversations and nobody, even the bosses don't try to remind you on a daily basis that they're bosses. That kind of thing. You know, we've all been in those settings where people can be difficult, but uh, I've just been incredibly fortunate now in the latest step as I've been focused on the books that the people I've worked with are very good at what they do and very good people. And I've, I've been able to learn a lot from them and hopefully put it to good use. And uh, and the readers will have to decide for themselves on the Steve Kerr book that's out and the UCLA book that is still to come. But hopefully it all it all comes together in the right mix. 
Absolutely. And I plan on writing a book on relationship building in a team environment. So if I have any words of wisdom that I need from you or guidance on, you know, what it's like to write books, especially your your first book. I have a broadcast journalism background from Michael Jordan's alma mater, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And, you know, I've really enjoyed my time. You know, I've been interviewed on national TV for a lot of different platforms talking about, you know, business and economics and public policy, political related topics. And, you know, you talk about, you know, Steve being, you know, a voice or an advocate and discussing political types of events and, you know, giving certain statements when certain things happen. So I have a that background too, where I can talk about, you know, things that are non-sports related, but, you know, everything overlaps, everything, you know, really, you know, you live a life and you see how the sports world interacts with the business world or the political world or the media world and, and whatnot. But I'm looking forward to writing this book and I want to highlight you in one of the chapters on relationship building in a team environment. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Roland Lazenby will be another guest um, who I feature as well as the assistant GM of the Warriors, Larry Harris and Kim Stone, the former general manager of the Chase Center. So, so happy that I have people who represent or have represented or been a part of that representation uh, of the of the Warriors. When you think about what goals you might have in the next three to five years, writing more books, I would imagine, um, maybe spending more time with family, uh, what <laughs> career uh, aspirations do you have that you know, are deeply rooted in relationship building? Well, I couldn't help but laugh because these are, uh, I've been, I wouldn't trade this job for anything. Uh, as I said before, I'm the luckiest guy around, but it is time consuming. and. Uh, you're uh, I'm, right now I'm living seven to 10 years, basically of UCLA basketball. And that takes a lot of time. And so uh, there's, that's time away from the family. I'm in my office most of that time, uh, but still you you have to sort of be able to lock out the outside world. So there is that factor. Uh, but yes, if I'm fortunate enough that I'm able to continue, if, if uh, people are as happy with the UCLA book as they were, it seemed to be with the Steve Kerr book in terms of reviews and interest for from publishers on a next project. If there is an opportunity for a next project, I would love to do it because I I truly enjoy this. Uh, I don't know. Um, there's no job that's perfect, but I would say this one's pretty darn close. So if I can continue in it and and still not need a photo ID to, to see my, you know, to remind my, my kids who I am, um, then, then that's a great mix for me. And I'm a happy guy. Definitely. And any final words about relationship building in a team environment that you'd like to share with the audience that we might've not covered, uh, before we uh, depart from our interview? I think you've done a great job of covering everything. Uh, I think, I'll use one of Steve's strengths just to to point this out, that it's not just about showing up with the right attitude and being a good guy in that team environment. There has to be a lot of awareness, self-awareness on how you're carrying yourself, but also awareness of everybody else. What What is the guy, if we're talking in a sports setting, in the locker across from you, if you're talking in a business setting, since that's a team environment as well, in the cubicle or in the office or something back in the olden days when we went into an office, um, the awareness to understand what are they going through? How do I connect with them? Uh, we may have completely different backgrounds, but but I think that we both want what's best for the final product. I, I can I can say that about the editor that I worked with on the Steve Kerr book and the one that I'm doing the UCLA book with now is a different editor. And I think we both uh, not only are good people, but we understand the other person because we take the time and uh, connect with them. It's going to make the final product better. Awareness is probably the one thing that maybe we haven't hit on that I would that I would point out. Just being aware of your surroundings, not just what's in it for me. Absolutely, and always thinking about the team, you know, before yourself. Because yes, you are a part of that team. And or any team, it could be in sports, 
It could be within your family. It could be at a company. It's in government. Yeah, everybody has to work in teams. But as long as you care about other people, as much as caring about yourself, you got to care about other people who will then care about you. And it's all about being selfless and it's all about leading an organization. And you're going to have your leaders and you're going to have your followers, but those followers will eventually become leaders once they learn from the existing leaders of any entity that he or she is a part of. So on that note, I want to thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. Love talking to you about your book, Steve Kerr, The Life. Good luck as you are uh, currently writing uh, your book about uh, the UCLA dynasty. And I look forward to staying in touch in the new year and keeping you updated about uh, my podcast, which I look forward to featuring uh, not only on YouTube, but Apple Podcasts and other platforms. I look forward to hearing more and following more uh, future podcasts. And I really look forward to your book. I'm excited about that. As soon as you mentioned the idea, I thought he's already sold one copy. But uh, that it, it sounds like a great one. I wish you uh, a lot of success in that and a happy new year. And thank you for the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, we, we've touched on some really good topic here. So thank you for including me. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to staying in touch. And yes, Happy New Year to you as well. God bless. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Take care.